Welcome to the Redeemer Church Odessa podcast. We are a gospel-centered, missional family that is rooted in biblical community and discipleship serving Odessa, Texas. Hello, I'm Imperial Lopez. I'm a part of the McLean Community Group. And today I'm going to be reading from John 1, 35 through 51. So bear with me a little bit. (laughs) Um, The next day again, John was standing with his two disciples. And he looked at Jesus as as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and sorry, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, (laughs) the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen, amen. Thank you, Imperial. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, thank you so much for uh, being with us. You can fill out a Connect card. There's some on the resource wall and then QR codes variously surrounding the building. Uh, And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. I'll have Andrew bring you one. If you're on your phone, we use the ESV. So I've said many times from this stage that I read a lot of history books One of the things that I found fascinating in in reading these books is how kind or unkind history and historians seem to be for the legacies of some of these historical figures. For example, a person accomplishes many a great thing, be it a military conquest or that he or she is kind to their subjects while in leadership, and history remembers them fondly with names such as Alexander the great. What made him great, he wasn't born and his parents named him 
the great. What made him great was that he conquered lands and he built a vast empire that spanned thousands and thousands of miles and it led to the spread of like Greek culture around the world. And then you have cool nicknames like Richard the Lionheart. Grace, you want to sing the song for us about Richard the Lionheart? All the, all the homeschool kids are in the back, so uh, Grace is the one for us. But anyways, Richard the Lionheart is the former king of England and he's a great warrior. In the 80s, the 1900s, where I hail from, um, we have Margaret Thatcher. She's known as the Iron Lady. That's a cool nickname. She's the Prime Minister of England, formerly. Now, on the other hand, you have sort of the unfortunate nicknames, like Ivan the Terrible. He gained this nickname by being, well, pretty terrible. It wasn't like he was born and his mom was like, This kid's the worst. We're going to call him the terrible. He earned this distinction. One of my personal favorites is Mary the First, a.k.a. Bloody Mary. She earned this nickname because she was brutal. Just if you were a dissenter, done. Uh, Nicknames like these are usually given to you because of something you did in the past that painted your legacy. Sports have them too. Most people don't know who Irvin Johnson is, but they've heard of Magic Johnson. I read this book about uh, these Comanches, and there was one guy in there named He-Dog. If I ever start a heavy metal band, guaranteed, He-Dog is what what we're going to be called. So, Easy, you want to play bass in He-Dog? All right, cool. Uh, In our text today, we're going to see Jesus calling his first disciples. And with this calling... Lives and legacies are changed. One guy's even given a nickname that's less about his legacy and more about the prophetic and omniscient, all-knowing power of Jesus and what happens to a person when Christ changes a life. So I want to spend a few minutes together looking at this text and, and be reminded together about the calling to follow Jesus and what the implications are for our lives. Jesus asks these first two disciples as they're following him. He says, what are you seeking? So I'd ask you to just lay that over your life. What are you seeking? What are you seeking in your own life? What are the motivations of your heart? Is it respect? Power? Approval? acceptance? Is it love? Are you just trying to be validated? Another question I'd ask you this morning is what is keeping you from being a fully devoted follower of Christ? What is keeping you from being a fully devoted follower of Jesus? What is Christ trying to change in you? So you'd want to follow him by faith and dependency. Let's take a look at this text together. Before we do, we're going to pray and ask ask the Lord for help. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our great need for you, Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in and walk in and be confident in our pardon that was purchased for us by you on the cross. 
Lord, and help us rest in our assurance of salvation and our eternal security that has been given to us through the resurrection, Jesus. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, the text says, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. All right, so let's set the scene, uh, the setting for this text. In John chapter 1, we have four days, and this is day three of four in in chapter 1. So day one and two we looked at last week. The Jewish leaders come from Jerusalem, and they confronted John the Baptist about his identity and his activity, and he emphatically said, no, I am not the Christ, but Jesus is. I am not the long-awaited, anointed, promised Messiah who comes to take away your sin, but Jesus is. It's him that you are looking for. John the Baptist doubles down on his confession on day two. He says uh, that as he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is confessing Jesus to be the Christ. So in verse 35, we get to day three. John the Baptist is standing with a couple of his disciples, and Jesus is walking by, much like the day before. And he points to Jesus and he says, look, there he is. It's the Lamb of God. Last week, we talked about the Passover in the book of Exodus. Passover was a time when the nation of Israel sacrificed lambs, pure and spotless lambs. And with the blood of these lambs, they painted the doorposts and the lentils of their homes. And God had sent the plague where he was going to kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So he tells the Israelites to to use the blood of the lamb and to paint their, their doorposts and their lentils. And when the Spirit of God would see the blood on these doorposts, he would pass over the house. And save those inside. Conversely, the Egyptians did not do this, and the Spirit of God killed the firstborn males in in all the houses in all the land of Egypt. And so every year at Passover, the Israelites would remember this by sacrificing lambs and having a Passover feast. But also in Judaism, at the temple, there would be two sacrifices daily. One in the morning and one in the evening on behalf of the people of God to pay for their sins. Each day, a lamb must be slaughtered because of sin. Blood must be shed for sin to be forgiven. These lambs were the sacrifice that paid for the sins of the people. God created man and said, hey, enjoy creation. You have free reign of this garden that I have placed you in, except don't eat the fruit from this one tree. 
and man. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed and rebelled against God and were cast out of the garden and away from the presence of the Lord. But before they left, God in his mercy sacrificed a lamb. And he sacrificed this lamb instead of killing Adam and Eve. And people have been rebelling against God ever since. You see, that's what sin is. It's treasonous rebellion against a holy God. Our rebellion isn't just what we do. It's our heart posture. It's our hearts that are not inclined towards the worship and adoration of, of God. So the sacrifice of a lamb paid for the sins of the people, though it didn't fully clear their debt. It was just a partial payment. The same as these lambs that were sacrificed daily. It was purely a temporary atonement. It was sufficient for you as long as you didn't sin again. So possibly a couple seconds after you made your sacrifice, you would need another one. Because that's how sinful we are. This lamb, these lambs, were a sacrifice for your sins, but only partially. These lambs also served to point forward to the one who would be sent from God to shed his own blood one time for all, so that sin would be forgiven forever. This payment would be made in full. And here's how. The lamb was a sacrifice, but it was also a substitute. The sinner would bring their sacrifice to pay for their own sins. The sinner is having to make a payment on their own to pay for their sin debt. But the lamb of God, who is Jesus, was brought by God to pay for our sins. You see, God had no sin that needed to be covered, but he provided a substitute in himself. Jesus came to earth as a man, and Jesus lived a life just like us, only he never sinned. And on himself, he took on our punishment. And this punishment would have been ours to bear were it not for Jesus coming to dwell with us. God sent the only all-sufficient, once-for-all substitute that could pay the full price of the penalty against sin. <clears throat> and the penalty against sin is our death. And it's our separation against God for all eternity For for those who believe in him. God paid that for us. Our sin has separated us from God. And God in Christ paid the penalty for us. God paid the penalty in order for us to be reconciled back to him. This was our price to pay. And Jesus paid it all. John the Baptist says, behold, look at him. Look to Jesus. 
This is the one. He is the one that you have been waiting for. He is the one. He is the rescuer. He is the redeemer. He takes your sinful, treasonous rebellion upon himself. He is the lamb without blemish. He is your pure and spotless lamb. And God laid upon him our punishments. And in exchange, God gives us Christ's righteousness. And Christ has adopted us as his children the lamb to take away our sin. He lived perfectly, and then he died perfectly. Then the fact that he rose is judgment upon his righteousness, meaning that because he was righteous, because he, was righteous he couldn't stay dead because the penalty of sin is death, and Christ never sinned. God clothed Adam and Eve to cover their shame. And God clothed us in his righteousness to cover our sin and to cover our shame as well. And this was done because of who God is. This wasn't done because of who we are. This was done because of who God is. And John says, there he goes. That is the Lamb of God. And so his disciples get up and follow Jesus. Again, can we just take note of the humility of John? To quote the Gen Zers of our day, like John the Baptist understands the assignment. Did I use that right, Bogdan? Is that right? Say less. All right, cool. Uh, John isn't trying to build a following. He's willing to let his disciples walk away from him in order to faithfully follow someone better. Can we follow the example of John the Baptist and say, not I, but Christ in me? Look to him. Follow me as I follow him. Let's look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? These are the first words of Jesus spoken in the Gospel of John. He notices them following him, and he turns around. And notice what he says. He says, not what are you seeking, but... Or not whom are you seeking, but what are you seeking? They responded, Rabbi, which means teacher. This is a sign of respect, though it is a long way from Lord or Master or God... This reveals to us that they truly don't know yet the real nature and character or the real identity of Jesus who is the Christ, the Messiah. So they ask him, where are you staying? They're wanting an uninterrupted conversation with Christ. In this day, to follow a rabbi, you had to be invited. You had to be invited by the rabbi to follow him. He didn't you didn't get to like insert yourself into the rabbi's life. The rabbi had to ask you to join him. So they're like kind of, hey, rabbi, where are you staying? Uh, they're, wanting, they're wanting more time with Jesus. They're asking him where he's at, hoping to get an invitation to hang out. They're also curious about the claims that John the Baptist has made, so they're trying to decide for themselves. Verse 39, Jesus said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. 
The 10th hour could be 10 a.m. or it could be 4 p.m. depending on which commentary you're reading. And if you're a Roman time person or a Jewish time person, it doesn't really matter though. What is important is that these two disciples spent the day with, meaning a significant amount of time with Jesus. And look what happens as a result. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. One of the two disciples is a guy named Andrew. He's the first disciple of Jesus. And he goes and he finds his brother Simon, who would become Peter. Before doing anything else, it would appear that Andrew went and found his brother. And he exclaimed, bro, we found the Messiah. We found the Christ. The long-awaited fulfillment is here. And after a day with Jesus, Andrew is convinced that Jesus is who John the Baptist says he is. Andrew becomes a missionary. Andrew confesses Jesus is the Christ, but what we'll see over the course of the gospel is that their concept of what it means and what, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah is still in need of growth and some purification and I think that's important for you. I think the implication for us is that we don't have to have a perfect understanding or a perfect faith before Christ reveals himself to us. And honestly, that should lead you to praise God. God just wants you. God just wants you, just like you are right this second. He just asks you to follow him, and he will grow you, and he will deepen your understanding of who he is. So many of us crush ourselves under the weight of having to know it all or having to be perfect. We're having to look perfect. So many of us crush ourselves under the weight of needing to have a complete understanding. But Jesus invites us into mystery. The mystery of the faith that he is the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And the mystery that God became a man to save sinners. The history of the confession of the disciples and the witness bearing of the disciples um, shows us there are ups and downs. There are times of belief and times of doubt and times of complete foolishness and times of misunderstanding of who Jesus is and his teachings. And yet, there's a gradual growth in understanding who Christ is and his will for our lives. So be encouraged. Christ wants you right where you're at. Right this second. 
The invitation of Christ at the moment of your salvation isn't dependent upon you. Christ isn't saying you have to have a perfect understanding of who he is and what he's done. Christ isn't saying that in order for you to be used by him, you have to have it all together. You have to have all your stuff together in order to follow Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Christ is just inviting us into humility and to a place where there is a willingness to follow him in faith. And I think that's important for you to take note of, especially if you struggle with assurance of salvation. And I know this is true because I deal with it in my own life at times. We spend so much time and so much energy trying to have our good, need, our good deeds outnumber our bad ones. And we spend a lot of time condemning ourselves for the things we do or the things that we don't do. And we want to be okay with God. And so consciously or unconsciously, we take it upon ourselves to do the work necessary to earn God's love or at least earn God tolerating us. And like, we function like, I don't even know if God loves me, but I just hope he'll forgive me. And that's not how it works. And when we keep score with ourselves, you know who wins? Nobody. The <laughs> yeah, the devil. What scripture teaches us, though, and what the cross shows us is none of this work is even possible on our own. The invitation for you is not to earn, but to rest. The invitation for you is not to work, but to trust. Trust that the cross is sufficient. The cross is sufficient to pay for your sins. The cross and the resurrection shows us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. He, not you, he is your all-sufficient sacrifice. He loves you enough to endure the cross. And so we can rest that he is going to complete what he started in us. He will grow you in faith and he will grow you in dependency on him. And let's be honest, this is often a moment by moment by moment fight. But take comfort. You do not fight alone. You have the Spirit of God inside of you, Christian, and you have the body of Christ walking arms with you. You fight through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, and you fight by remembering the gospel through the scriptures that remind you of who you are in Christ. Rest. Rest in the resurrection that has sealed you in the Holy Spirit. rest. All right, back to the text. We have Andrew and this unnamed disciple, 
And just as an aside, it is possible that even though the text doesn't say this, that the second unnamed apostle is the apostle John, the, the John that writes this, this gospel. Throughout the 21 chapters of the gospel of John, he never refers to himself by name. And so this is possible that this is John. Uh, Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him. Literally in the Greek it says, looks him over or looks into his soul. He looks at Peter. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon, you will be called Peter, which means rock. This is, to be honest, the most untrue nickname ever given to a person in all of human history. Peter is more like jello than a rock. Peter is impulsive. Peter is prone to wild emotional swings. He demonstrates a propensity towards anger. And Jesus, functioning in his prophetic role, says, Peter, you will not be this way forever. You will be changed by divine grace. You see, that's the power of the gospel. It frees us from labels. It renames us and it reshapes our identities into children of God. The former slaves to sin are now sons and daughters of righteousness through Christ. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. The next day, day four, Jesus is headed towards Galilee, and he sees this guy, Philip. Philip is from the same place that Andrew and Peter are. It's this little fishing town known as Bethsaida, and Jesus says, follow me. I wonder if Andrew and Peter have gone and talked to Philip already. Maybe, maybe not. But on the command of Jesus to follow him, Philip gets up and goes. Philip becomes a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. I don't think I've said this yet, but disciple means learner or follower. So we have Philip, we have Andrew, we have Peter, we have this unnamed disciple, possibly John. And if it is John, uh, then his brother James is most likely with them too. So another side, Philip and Andrew are the only two disciples to have Greek names, which will become important later in the gospel. Just put that in your pocket for now. We'll get to it later down the road. Philip, too, like Andrew, becomes a missionary, and it's clear that this Jesus guy has something that is worth telling others about. It's clear that these men have been radically changed by Jesus, and what will also be clear in the next 20 chapters of John is that though they were changed, they still have a long ways to go, and Jesus is patient, and Jesus is kind, and Jesus is gentle with these men. So may that encourage you. Back to Philip. He has a story to tell. Here he comes to his friend Nathaniel. This is one of my favorite exchanges in all of Scripture. Verse 45 and 46. Philip found, found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Before we jump into this exchange, a note on Nathaniel for you, for your Bible study um, that I hope you're doing. Nathaniel is only mentioned in John's gospel. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is a, another disciple named Bartholomew. 
The name in Greek sounds like the name Theodore, which means gift of God. Nathaniel means God has given. So it's assumed that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are one and the same, the same person. So Philip runs up to his buddy and he says, hey, this is the guy we've been waiting for. This Jesus guy, this is the one that Moses was talking about in the law. This is the one that the prophets were prophesying about in the whole Old Testament. This is the one that the Old Testament scriptures have been telling us about. It's him. Philip is essentially saying, because of this Jesus guy, the scriptures have been fulfilled. If we don't see Jesus as the promised Savior, then the Old Testament hasn't been fulfilled, and therefore, it remains useless to us. But Jesus is here. He is the Son of God, but he's also the son of Joseph. You know, the carpenter from Nazareth, Nathaniel, you remember that guy? And this is problematic to Nathaniel. Philip hasn't said anything incorrect at this point. Jesus was indeed Joseph's son, in a sense, you know, adopted by, adopted by Joseph. And Jesus was from Nazareth. Nazareth. This was Jesus' hometown. Nathaniel, though, is a devout Jew, and he knows the Old Testament. Nazareth is not mentioned not one single time in the Old Testament. The Messiah is from Bethlehem. The Messiah is from the city of David. He would come from there. Philip hasn't been made aware yet of where Jesus was born. That's not usually like first-time meeting conversation. Hey, where were you born? Uh, Philip doesn't know this yet. So Nathaniel's sitting there listening to his friend Philip thinking like, no way, dude, he cannot be from Nazareth. I used to think Nathaniel was basing his hometown or his response on like hometown rivalry, like how Midlanders talk about Odessa people or like my grandmother who grew up in Clovis, New Mexico. She thought all Hobbes people were rude. And then my grandpa got a job in Hobbes, and she, he was like, hey, we're moving to Hobbes. And she was distraught. Not Hobbes, please, anywhere else but Hobbes. That's how she was, she was feeling. But it's not like this at all. Nathaniel knew the scriptures. He's like, this can't be true, Philip. The Messiah is not from Nazareth. So Philip responds, hey, come and see. In response to Nathaniel's doubts, Philip brings Nathanael to Jesus. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. This is verse 47. And he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Here we see Jesus looking into the soul of another would-be disciple and rightly sees who he is. Nathaniel, though, is skeptical. He says, hey, how'd you know that? Jesus demonstrates his omniscient power to Nathaniel. I saw you under the fig tree in your private moments. I saw you, and I know you're devout. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus' declaration seems to have struck Nathaniel deeply. Jesus has revealed something to Nathanael that there was only, really only one way for him to know, and that was like if he was God, that's the only way Jesus could know this. 
Jesus has met Nathaniel right where he was, and he looked into his heart, and Nathaniel exclaims, you are the son of God. Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel. Matt Carter says about this encounter with Jesus that even when we're not aware of it, Jesus sees us. Even when we don't see God, he is there, fully aware of all that's happening. He knows not only what's happening on the outside, but he sees your heart. I hope if you're in here today and you're dealing with discouragement in whatever area of life you may be discouraged, that this encourages you, that God sees you, and God is aware of you, and more than that, God loves you, and God wants you, and there is an invitation to cling to him and to follow him. So be reminded of his nature and his character and his goodness. All right, verse 50 and 51, and we'll wrap this up. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus says you will see even greater things than this. The reward for your faith, Nathaniel, is great things will be revealed to you. Verse 51 takes us back to Genesis 28 with Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel. If you don't know the story, Jacob deceives his father and steals the blessing from his brother Esau. And so his brother Esau has vowed to kill him. And so Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau. And as he's running, he lays down for a rest in this, in this field, and he has a dream. In this dream, he sees this ladder stretching from earth all the way up to heaven. And on this ladder, the angels are ascending and descending up and down, going on it back and forth between earth and God. And God is at the top of the ladder. Jesus is saying that the angels of God will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man, meaning on Jesus himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Jesus is saying that the only way into the presence of God is through Jesus. The great things that Jesus promises Nathaniel and all of the disciples, which extends to every follower of Christ from age to age, is that we will recognize that Jesus is the only one that can provide our peace with God. And he is the only one that can create a way back to God. It's Christ himself, through his death on the cross, that makes this possible. The text confronts all of us when Jesus says, What are you seeking? Is it possible that you're in here looking for assurances that you're okay with God? That your effort and your sincerity will be sufficient on its own to please God? Man, perhaps you're feeling empty and this is an attempt to escape those feelings. Or maybe you're in here because you're looking for some kind of experience. 
Jesus asks you to examine your life and answer, what is it that you are really looking for? What do your actions, what does your behavior, what do your words suggest that you are looking for? Is it Christ or is it something else? Jesus invites us to follow him. And he will change your desires. He changes your desires from glorifying yourself and your fleshly desires to glorifying God and Christ. And Christ will give you meaning and purpose and life. He says, you will see that I am better. All we really and truly need is found in Jesus. If you're looking for approval... The blood of Christ says you're approved before God. If you're looking for approval, the blood of Christ says you are approved before God through faith and forgiveness purchased for you. If you are looking for security, Christ has provided you eternal security through salvation in him. Christ's death and resurrection means you, Christian, have been accepted and you, Christian, are loved and valued. Jesus' disciples say, look, come and see. In order to be a true disciple of Jesus, you follow Jesus. And out of that, you are changed by Jesus. And look, sometimes it can be discouraging, right? Because we are not changing as quickly as we'd like. But the fact that there is any growth in us at all should cause us to praise God for the work of the Spirit to grow us in faith and in dependency on Jesus. If there is any growth at all in you, there is work being done. Look at Peter. Jesus gives Peter a new name, not based on anything that Peter could do, but only through the power of Christ in him. Peter would go on to be a leader in the first century Jewish Christian church. He would write two books in the New Testament. Jesus has radically changed Peter over the course of his lifetime. Listen, friends, it is a slow cook. It is not a microwave. It is a slow cook, but it is worth the wait. When we're changed by Jesus, we're invited to join him in mission Jesus spent three years with this group of men who were changed by Jesus' grace to them. And after the ascension of Christ, they took the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And we are the recipients of this grace. Because God used their faithfulness to grow his church. And what about you? Have you been changed by the grace of God to you? Has the cross of Christ moved you to faith and obedience to worship Jesus and to follow him? Are you living like a missionary where you live, work, and play? Are you struggling beneath the weight of your sin? Are you trying to do enough? Be good enough on your own. Are you trying to check enough church boxes to feel okay with where you're at? Jesus offers you himself, and that's enough. Jesus says, follow me, and that's enough.
He works in you moment by moment to grow you in faith and dependency. If you are a Christian, you have been radically changed. So the invitation isn't to sit and do nothing but to engage with Christ through prayer and the word and the Holy Spirit will work in you to grow you and strengthen you in your faith. Will you consider your life this morning? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information or to give to this ministry, please visit RedeemerChurchOdessa.org.